Hello, and welcome to this special episode of Radio Siams, a podcast of the Cornell Institute of Archaeology and Material Studies. My name is Rebecca Gerdes. I'm a PhD candidate in classical archaeology at Cornell University. My name is Alice Wolf, and I'm a PhD candidate in medieval archaeology here at Cornell. Today's conversation is a special episode reflecting back on a conference that SIAMS co-hosted this past October with the Archaeological Science Group at Cornell. Both Alice and I are archaeological scientists. Alice is an archaeobotanist, and I am a biomolecular archaeologist specializing in organic residue analysis. And in 2018, we and a couple of other SIAMS graduate students founded the Archaeological Science Group to create a space for promoting an ethical, responsible, and archaeologically meaningful practice of archaeological science. We started talking about hosting a conference at Cornell after Rebecca attended the 2018 iteration of the Frontiers in Archaeological Science conference series. The conference series was started by Dan Cabanes at Rutgers University to bring together senior scholars and up and coming researchers to showcase cutting edge research in all applications of STEM techniques to archaeology. The second iteration was held at Simon Fraser University in Canada. We decided to take up the challenge of organizing the third conference in the series, but with some changes. Our conference was titled Frontiers in Archaeological Sciences 3, Rethinking the Paradigm, with a line through the word frontiers. Rebecca, do you want to say a little bit about our motivation for organizing this conference? Sure. So from relatively early on, the Archaeological Science Group found ourselves focusing on three big questions in our regular article discussions. Um, how good is the science? How good is the archaeology? And how good are the ethics? With the increasing urgency of conversations about ethics and restorative justice in archaeology in the wake of George Floyd's murder in June 2020, we found ourselves grappling with the question, how do we pursue archaeological science work, not just in a scientifically responsible and archaeologically meaningful way, but in a way that addresses past and ongoing issues and pursues restorative justice? That question, shaped by discussions with Cornell's American Indian and Indigenous Studies program and Cornell's Indigenous Graduate Student Association, uh, is what ultimately led us to Frontiers in Archaeological Sciences Three, Frontiers with a line through it, rethinking the paradigm. It was clear that the archaeological sciences had to confront the problematic history of imperialism and settler colonialism beyond the challenges of improving scientific excellence and archaeological relevance. And we knew we and the archaeological sciences had a lot to learn. We focused the conference on rethinking the paradigm because we wanted to make a space to address these big questions and to create a space to learn, um, and ultimately to reimagine the future of the archaeological sciences. So we're joined today by four of the presenters from uh, the conference who participated in these bold conversations. Each of them will introduce themselves in turn, and we're looking forward to having a great conversation together, reflecting on the conference and what comes next. But before we do that, Alice, I think our listeners might be wondering, um, do you want to say briefly why we included a strike through through the word frontiers? Of course. So the strike through came out of discussions with the Indigenous Graduate Student Association, as well as our own concerns about the colonial resonances of the term frontier. Um, the term frontier is often utilized to describe the future of innovations in science, but it's also become an inadvertent acquiescence into a Western-centric concept of modernity. 
The context of this use of frontier is rooted in a history of white settler colonialism, and it's used to describe the unknown and unconquered spaces. We thought that to uncritically use this word would be to valorize the atrocities committed in the name of the frontier. Our use of the strike through is intended to invoke a generative anti-colonial discomfort in order to confront these biases and have some productive discussions around rethinking the paradigm of archeological sciences. So let's get started. I'd like to start us off by asking each of our participants to introduce themselves and tell us a little bit about how you participated in the conference. Like what did you present and why you participated in the conference? Hi, I'm Rachel Kalisher. I'm pursuing a PhD in archeology span and a science master's in biology at Brown University. I'm a bioarchaeologist, so I study ancient human remains. And specifically for this conference, I presented a poster on life histories and bone histology. This project is a shared labor of love with collaborators in forensics and paleoanthropology. And I wanted to discuss the ways that advances in these fields can be applied to archeological contexts. So I participated in this conference specifically because I really wanted an opportunity to connect with the archeological science community in the US, which admittedly feels pretty small compared to elsewhere in the world. So happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Hi, uh, my name is Chiamaka Mangut. Uh, I'm an archaeobotanist and a second year PhD student at the Department of Earth and Environmental Sciences, uh, Columbia University. Uh, why I came, yeah, I participated because our lab group received a kind of an invitation to discuss ethics. And uh, we received with so much excitement because ethics is an issue amongst others in research that our lab is concerned and particular about. And our presentation was a poster uh, presentation on ethical considerations um, when using remote sensing in archaeological research. And the uh, title of the poster was uh, the Panopticon and Archaeological, uh, Panopticon and Archaeological Remote Sensing. And this presentation focuses on the ethical use of remote sensing technologies in archaeological prospecting and the power dynamics involved in the use of remote sensing, especially when dealing with local um, and indigenous communities and when used to document like culturally significant places. And it's also a good opportunity to like meet with our other emerging scholars and you know, see them and discuss um, ideas that are like affecting us in the discipline. I'm really excited to be here and thanks for having me. Hi, my name is Hollis Miller. I'm an assistant professor at SUNY Cortland in central New York. I just started in that position this fall, and I'm also still wrapping up the final pieces of my PhD at the University of Washington in Seattle. My research is with the Alutic or Sukpiak tribe of Old Harbor on Kodiak Island in Alaska. We use archaeology, oral history, and ethnohistory to undercover stories of Sukpiak ancestors, specifically during the Russian colonial period from the mid-1700s to the mid-1800s. I and my co-author, Tamara Swenson, who's an artist from Old Harbor, uh, gave a presentation at the conference about how we communicate the archaeological research we do with the Old Harbor community, using storytelling, art, and youth-centered programs. We wanted to participate in the conference to learn more about all of the new ways that folks are engaging with archaeological science and share our own strategies for keeping our research relevant to the community we work with. We hope that will inspire others to make their research results and interpretations uh, more accessible and meaningful to descendant and local communities and not just to the scientific or archeological community. Wow, you all had such wonderful introductions. 
Um, my name is Emily Milton, and I am a fourth year PhD student in anthropology and environmental science and policy at Michigan State University. My co-author is a friend of mine. Her name is Melina Seabrook. Um, she is a PhD candidate in anthropology at Harvard University. Um, and we are both um, archaeologists that work with stable isotopes and zooms, so you know, emerging methods in biochemical analyses. Um, I'm an environmental archaeologist. I work in the central Andes of Peru on Pleistocene and early Holocene forager lifeways. And Melina works in Iraq on Near Eastern archaeological investigations of human-animal interactions. So we gave a co-authored talk called Resisting the Knowledge Economy by Braiding Better Baselines. And um, we were inspired to write this talk together um, because we're really interested in how uh, archaeological sciences represent specialist knowledge um, and how that basically ends up producing a sort of fast data um, that perpetuates something called the knowledge economy, which is basically this bigger system we're all in in academia. That's great. So um, again, my name is Alice Wolf, um, and I'm a PhD candidate here at Cornell. Um, and I was didn't participate in the conference so much as I was one of the co-organizers of the conference. Um, so as Rebecca said earlier, I'm an archaeobotanist, and I work in northern England on human crop interactions, I guess you could say, human plant interactions, um, focusing primarily on agricultural weeds. Uh, and I've been working in community-based archaeo archaeology there for about nine years, and so I'm really committed to a sort of public-facing um, interpretation of archaeological data, science data, because I've found one of the challenges of my work is how to communicate what I'm doing with these tiny black fragments that I find dig up out of the earth, and how do I take that and turn it into something that's meaningful for the local communities that I'm working in. Um, so that's something that I was really excited to organize this conference about and learn from other people about. Uh, this is Rebecca again. Um, thank you guys so much for, for those answers. I think um, I'll just jump in and say a little bit uh, for myself. I, I also served on the conference organizing committee as the conference chair. And um, for me, I work on organic residue analysis in the Mediterranean, but ultimately I'm really interested in people and about people studying people in the past, their practices, their habits, daily life, cooking habits, et cetera. And uh, making that leap from really heavy organic chemistry data to an archaeological interpretation that is scientifically robust and meaningful and also cognizant of where we get our materials from and responsible um, was something I've been really thinking a lot about in my dissertation. But I kind of wondered if it was just me or maybe if it was just the Cornell folks who were getting a little obsessed about this. And um, so it was really... Um, putting on this conference and, and shaping it around rethinking the paradigm was, was kind of an experiment, if you will, uh, in asking the question of who, who else is thinking, thinking about these things. And I think that leads really nicely into our um, next question, which is uh, what were some of your biggest takeaways from this conference? Um, what things are you still thinking about? What things rang a lot of bells with you? What things just made you say, oh, I want to think about that more, or, oh, I feel validated. So keeping it in the one sentence, <laughs> there's so much that I'd love to say um, about this that I haven't um, necessarily prepared an answer for, but it's, it's that archaeological science is relatively easy and it doesn't need to be expensive, but the barriers to it, to doing good archaeological science are training and mentorship. 
and that comes hand in hand with access to resources. And so I think that um, one of the things that I really loved about this conference is how it was such a generous, a group of people that were so generous with their knowledge that wanted to collaborate and train and teach and share. And I think that that's kind of a necessary way to really talk about, you know, it's challenging the establishment of, of archaeological science in general, where typically folks kind of hold on to their knowledge and their resources and guard them really closely. I think that in order to kind of move on, we need to to break down those those barriers. Um, I totally agree with you, Rachel. Like it's really gonna be difficult summarizing my takeaway just in a sentence, but <laughs> I learned a great deal from this conference, you know. It was exciting and it was encouraging um, to see that scholars are discussing several issues that we could use in creating the type of um, archeological studies or research we anticipate to have you know, in the future, now and in the future. So I, I had a spectrum, like a whole broad spectrum of takeaways. But then um, first, I'm happy to see that we are having this meaningful con conversations about why we are doing archeological research and whom we are doing this research for, and if we are doing it right, in the right way or not. So I, I will just summarize my takeaway um, in one sentence, like, my great takeaway was that um, we are I should or carrying out meaningful research. Um, there is a need for like archaeological research that promotes multivocality in knowledge production. You know, by consensually like collaborating and engaging local stakeholders and the public um, at all stages of our research. You know, and not just when we feel convenient for it. So. It should we should be able to bring them in at all stages, ranging from like research design, the research question, all through to like interpretation and research output. So uh, that was one of my greatest like takeaways from here. That was amazing, Chimaka. Um, I'm going to echo a lot of what you just said there, but it was so um, you know heartwarming and like heart opening to be at the conference um, with all of you and all of these younger scholars who are really invigorating the field and, and, and innovating and moving it forward. And my big takeaway from the conference um, is how fruitful it is to bring together these different methods, different knowledge systems, because we get such rich interpretations of the past when we take that multivocal approach, when we're drawing on different lines of evidence and, um, you know, braiding them together, as, as folks have said before. Um, I'll just agree with everyone. I think something that's so hard to convey in a podcast is how much fun we were all having. You know, like I think the talks were so energizing and people are really excited to be there. Um, the biggest takeaway I had like prepared for this statement was basically, you know, there are a lot of people that are uncomfortable with the way that we currently practice archaeological sciences, whether that be what we've talked about with access to methods or with for and for whom are we doing these um, different practices, especially when they're destructive practices. But it was also an inspiring conference because I think there were a lot of people who came together and genuinely, like we all care about this. We wanna create a different sort of archeological science and we want to create friendships. We wanna sort of like push back on these sorts of um, institutional traumas that are handed down to us and sort of, you know, 
create a space where everyone can learn, where everyone has a voice, where everyone is um, able to have access to new methods to learn new things or to have an input on how we might reconsider something that we've like created a paradigm for. So yeah, I think the biggest takeaway for me is that there are people out there trying to come up with creative solutions who are passionate and driven to create a collaboration and to push back against what we've been taught. And I think that's really energizing and exciting. Yeah, this is Rebecca again. And I think for me, it was really just hearing you guys and all of the other presenters and all of the questions and engagement. Um, my, one of my biggest takeaways was I'm, we're not the only ones. <laughs> um, and um, also I think a lot of what you guys have just shared really um, fits, reminds me of what our keynote speaker, Keisha, Dr. Keisha Supernet said, um, and some of the work she's been doing with many others on heart-centered archeology. span you, you guys mentioned words like friendship and generosity and things that are not always associated with the culture of knowledge production in academia. And um, that to me was, to have that validated, the fact that our whole selves belong in what we do and not just and not just our minds only um, was really, really inspiring. Um, on the other hand, I also really took away from, um, from, from Emily's talk about specialized knowledge is power. And I think this goes back to what Rachel said that um, being willing to and wanting to be generous with that, that power that, um, that you have is, is so, I don't want to say inspiring because I feel like that's how it should be, <laughs> but it's heartwarming. Um, so I think those, those were some of my takeaways, but I think also that, that we have to walk away with, if we're going to deconstruct, we have to put back together. And this was what, um, Dr. Maggie Spivey Faulkner at the University of Alberta, she gave our opening, our opening talk. And she said about kind of deconstruction, it doesn't matter if you rip it apart, if you don't replace it with something. And so I think a lot of what you guys have been sharing about heart and about generosity and kind of that ethos we had throughout the conference is the drive towards replacing, but I think we have a lot of work to do towards that replacing. Um, yeah, I, I think Rebecca kind of took everything I was going to say, which is that especially the part just, I just really want to emphasize this idea that um, we're not alone and we this I think emphasizing this important the importance of community in this deconstructing and reconstructing of archaeology we're not going to do it by ourselves um it's through these conversations and through collaborations with other people who are also interested in sort of heart-centered approaches that we're going to be able to rebuild something hopefully better um in the future so thanks so much for your responses to those questions so we just wanted to move on to um a slightly different question, which is in which areas does the field seem to be struggling the most to find solutions? So in other words, what are the biggest challenges to rethinking the paradigm? So I think there's a lot of problems, but I'm sure each one of us is going to have a different thing to say. Um, on the kind of previous issue that we talked about with, with holding on to information and the need to democratize it, I think that that's a natural byproduct of how insular lab-based research can be. 
So at universities, we have members working in labs that are built around methods, right, rather than questions. And so for archaeological scientists, it feels like this insulation is even more amplified because we're approaching these challenging anthropological questions through singular modes of inquiry. And so this is siloing our research, both what we can ask and what we can answer. And so it's an easy way to get papers out and perhaps build up your citation scores. Um, it actually does little justice to the stories that we're trying to tell. So where I think we can perhaps build or build back up in addition to tearing back down is that I think that we need to rethink how we conceptualize interdisciplinarity. And that starts with creating physical spaces where researchers from across the spectrum can gather and focus on questions and themes and topics explored through a variety of methods rather than just one, because we are humanists and we wanna know human questions. And that often can't be done with just one lens or one perspective. Um, yes, uh, Rachel, yeah, thank you so much for, for setting the pace for that question, um, yeah. So as you said, like we have a long way to go, but it's good we've started. Yeah, it's good we've started. So uh, to me, I think we're really struggling in the aspect of decolonizing um, theoretical frameworks and methods in our research approaches. Like archeological methods and theories, I think should not be a one size fits all application. You know, we should start pulling back from imposing, I would say, Western theoretical frameworks in indigenous spaces or research. You know, we should allow for flexibility in shaping our methods and our approaches, um, considering that cultures are unique and also dynamic. And still going off of that, um, we should start, we are actually also struggling in like fully incorporating community stakeholders in research, right? Yeah, uh, it's not enough. I said this earlier, you know, to just in, just fix them in when we feel like. But you know, when we mean like total inclusion, we should include them from the beginning to the to the end of our research. And we are still struggling with this systemic. There's this systemic setback in archaeology, um, in engaging indigenous epistemologists rather in our research and. Um, also appropriately like acknowledging stakeholder communities as they should be acknowledged, which is being acknowledged, acknowledge, acknowledging them as knowledge holders, you know? And one more, one important thing I think we're still struggling about is um, publishing for the public. Um, we have to stare off just publishing, publishing our work for like the academic world. You know, we just read it and dump it off the, sh off the shelf, you know. But if we are really doing this research for the public, then we should be able to publish for the public such that they are able to read and understand. And I believe this will bring a sort of accountability to the researchers. Because if you're writing, knowing that anybody, including the community you worked in, could pick up your work at random at any time and read, you'll be conscious of the kind of information you know, you're, you're producing in your research. Um, so I think I'll just leave it at that. There's a whole lot to talk about, really. And once again, thank you, Chiamaka. Um, I think I'm going to echo a lot of the same things that she just said. Um, I think the field is really struggling with how to reckon with its colonial legacy. It's one thing to acknowledge that violence and harm has been done, and in some cases, it's still ongoing. 
against indigenous peoples around the world by anthropology and archaeology. Um, but uh, it's quite another thing to actually heal our practice and uh, make amends and do some good with our research, as Chiamaka has said. And I think we've got a lot of disciplinary intransigence that we're dealing with um, there on those fronts. And, you know, the presenters at this conference are, are people who are doing this work of healing, of changing our practices. Um, and I hope that the rest of our um, colleagues will start listening to what we have to say. Um, there was this, or this was a central message in Dr. Keisha Supernant's keynote uh, when she was talking about archaeology and restorative justice. Dr. Supernant and many other indigenous archaeologists are um, actively leading the way in doing this kind of healing work. And it's high time for those of us, including myself, who are settler scholars to really step up. We must also do that work of using archeological knowledge for justice. And that's gonna mean staying engaged with descendant communities and engaging in active listening and conversation before we design or as we're designing that next research program, um, not as an after the fact kind of thing. Um, I just want to say again, all amazing points. Um, I agree so wholeheartedly with everything that's been said, Chiamaka, your points on decolonizing and especially um, communication and bringing in different kinds of like um, uh, theories, like decolonizing our theory, especially I think is critical. Um, what I what I had that I kind of wanted to talk about was um, these two things and one is communication and one is destructive practice. And I think for communication, um, you know, just trying to follow up on what's been said, I think it is our ethical responsibility as individuals, Not we're not reliant on other people of our team, but as individuals to make sure that we are communicating clearly with everyone that we're working with. So whether we're communicating to our advisors about what we're intending to do, whether we're communicating to our students, whether we're communicating to the public or whether we're communicating to community members who are impacted by what we do. And I think, um, you know, recognizing that we're working with specialized knowledge and mobilizing techniques that exist, especially in indigenous scholarship of sort of making sure that people can understand what it is that we're trying to communicate. So for example, using story work, using imagery, I'm using simplified language, um, reducing the jargon, like getting the jargon out of the picture and making sure that we're taking the time too. And then also recognizing when we're taking people's time and that time is valuable. So if we can do this over a meal that we provide or creating a space where there's community, um, I think that's a really critical thing that um, I think archeologists need to think more about. And I, I had a quote in my talk um, that I had found the night before and I added in, and um, it was from Joe Watkins. And he just talks about how archeologists are such bad communicators. He wrote that 20 years ago. Um, and so I'll just emphasize it. And this is this is something Melina, my co-author and I have talked about excessively. It's just like, where is the communication when it comes to these methods? So the other thing I wanted to say quickly was, um, and this one goes out to Maggie because she brought up this sort of like, if I hear, <laughs> you know, one more time that a student needs to go out and excavate, 
Um, and I, I think that's true. I think we really need to think about the destructive nature of the discipline and try and rectify with that as well, because um, a lot of archaeological sciences, not all, but a lot of them are destructive. Um, excavation is destructive. And I think these things have real impacts and we need to move away from destructive analysis. And I think there are a lot of ways to sort of rebuild that. Um, for example, we really need more care and money to go into our collections. Um, and we really need, uh, for example, environmental baseline data that are more sustainable sorts of forms of data that are not archaeological materials. Um, and so I think there are a lot of ways to reduce destruction while kind of keeping things going. But um, I'll also quote something that Rachel brought up in the discussion, and that's this idea of like slow archaeology. There is a sort of fastness to the archaeology that we're practicing. And I think when we're moving quickly, we don't take time to think about the ethical implications of our work, um, whether that be taking time to communicate, taking time to think, do I really need to destroy these artifacts to get where I'm trying to go? So I, I would say that the field should try and take time for a little bit slower of a practice. Yeah, all of I'm so, first of all, I'm just so honored to be in all of your guys' presence. You're all so awesome and cool. Um, everything you guys have said has brought up just another thought with specifically this issue of where are we struggling right now as archaeological scientists. And this kind of touches upon the communication issue that Emily said, the um, being able to talk about different theoretical frameworks that both Chiamaka and Hollis were talking about. And that is that archaeological science isn't that objective. Like people, I think that in archaeology, we tend to think that science is this ultimate um, kind of trump card that we can play to really know something about the past. And this is totally happening right now with ancient DNA. Um, and, and there's an interpretive element to science that means that even there's no, like the raw data is being interpreted and mushed together and we're creating these narratives from it. And it's giving primacy to data as this sterile objective thing. And as archeological scientists, it's also our responsibility to make sure that we are communicating the limitations um, and being explicit with our own methods so that we're not creating this a new false narrative of the past. Um, and that is something that I think we've been failing at hard with the public, um, that we're not being explicit enough with, you know, how data can be interpreted different ways. I mean, from year to year, you could have the same data set interpreted several different ways by different labs, by different people, or some new method comes out and suddenly everything we know isn't true anymore. And so exercising more caution and being really upfront about what it is that we're doing, that we are humans interpreting this information and that our own biases and thoughts and training are really um, are really a big part of, of what our results and conclusions ultimately are. Um, yeah, um, thank you, um, Hollis, Rachel, and Emily. Like you all just touched a very, a very salient point. And um, Emily, you mentioned something about, um, you know, ethics, which is very, very, very important. You know, that's, um, that takes me back to what um, I think what Dr. Supernant said about archaeology of the heart. Like we should be, when we're carrying out archaeology, we should make sure that, you know, whatever we are doing is not affecting our host communities, right? If we, if we are not taking that into cognizance, that means we are doing exactly what it is we are condemning, what it is we are standing up against, and then we are not making any change. And um, we, you know, trying to steer the boat away from how we used to be. Definitely it's not gonna come easy. I'm, I'm very sure of that. 
would rock boats, right? <laughs> you're going to rock boats. You're going to open some kind of worms, you know, have to go down some rabbit holes. But then if we want archaeology to be the kind of the archaeology we practice to be what it is that we'll be proud enough to pass on to the next generation, then it should be something we should be ready to take bold steps on, you know? And um, I totally agree with you, Emily, when you said something about communicating, our, uh, you know, our results, especially the use of jargons, which I still mentioned about that, writing for the public, you know? I remember my advisor, we always say this, that um, once in a while we should try to like, um, you know, discuss our research without jargons, because you're not doing this for yourself. You're not doing this for your colleagues. You're doing this. You're doing this work for a set of people. That's what sets you apart from the archaeology we used to be did in the past or that was done in the past, right? So uh, it's difficult because at times I try, but most times when you want to like break down some jargon and you just realize that oh my god, this is harder than I thought. Okay, <laughs> you know. So. Um, you, you all just juggled up my memory on so many things. I really wish you had longer time to talk about this. I feel like we are in the conference again, you know, talking and sharing all this. And I'm really glad to be here once again. Um, yes, this is Hollis jumping back in. Um, I love what, you know, Chumaka and Rachel just said, in sort of acknowledging the um, the fact that our data is not objective. And the idea that it is comes from this very Western scientific framework that we're all educated in. And I think from, you know, by learning from scholars that operate in different knowledge systems, like Dr. Spivey Faulkner, like Dr. Supernaut, um, we can begin to see that our, our data, even in a Western scientific framework, is um, coming, you know, how we put it together comes from our own present context. And it comes from our own relationships and identities and experiences in the present, um, which is another reason why it's so important to have more people that have different experiences in their lives today working in archaeology. How can you possibly imagine a past um, that has diverse actors in it if all the people that are interpreting that past are white, middle-class, um, English-speaking folks, you know, so there's a really um, so much good that's happening in sort of pulling apart those assumptions of Western science and saying this is not the only way that we can learn about the past and, and put these stories together. There are a lot of other ways of imagining how data sits in relation to each other. Oh, thank you all so much. Um, that was such a great discussion. Um, I I think you've touched on so many salient points. I don't think that I have much to add, except that, um, yeah, I think in terms of the biggest challenge, I think that it's going to be difficult. I think it's going to be difficult to convince people who are very set in their ways, um, because I think a lot of people, I don't think that, I think that a lot of people aren't malicious. I think they're just sort of doing what they think is best. And even if they're wrong, I think they're wrong. Um, sometimes it's hard to convince people that what they're doing is actually harmful because they don't want to be seen as doing harm. Um, so that's something that I see as a big challenge to the future of archaeological science. Wow. The, there's there's just so much richness in what um, everybody has shared. I, I think I'm especially, I guess one, one thing that maybe hasn't quite been mentioned, but I really wanted to, to draw out was um, on the subject of fast science. Um, we talked a lot about fast science in the 
knowledge economy. But another fast thing that we often do um, is try to do justice fast. And this is something that Sabrina Agarwal, um, who's at University of Berkeley, pointed out in her talk that um, many attempts at deconstructing and at justice are urgent because they're often fueled by white guilt. And I find myself dealing with this um, and keeping this in mind in, in, in my own practice. And so we have so many lofty goals here. And so I guess um, I think to me, the biggest challenge is how do we work towards these slowly, patiently, and at the pace that they have already been going for people who've been working on justice in academia for years and who, for me at least, I'm a fairly recent join to the conversation. So how do I join what people are already doing rather than jumping in with my own urgent agenda of we have to fix things now that we see there's a problem? Um, so uh, with that, I'd love to move into kind of one last discussion question of how will things look different for you moving forward? Um, what new actions are you thinking about implementing in your research or teaching or professional life after attending these con this conference and um, being part of these discussions? I, I don't know where to begin. Um, there's kind of, a, I guess I have a multifaceted answer to this in that there's a lot that I can do. There's a lot that I can't do, and there's a lot that I wanna do. Um, I'm a graduate student currently. There is not a ton that I can do in terms of really implementing structural change. Um, I, I can do what, what is offered, what, what is available, I should say. You know, I, I can um, rework syllabi. I can make sure that I'm reading more broadly than I am, um, that I'm in kind of acting on the generosity that I am getting and seeing in my colleagues. But um, at this stage, you know, at, at the early career stage, it's it's very much a matter of of trying to galvanize with our other, with our fellow colleagues and trying to envision what we see our future as being and then thinking together about how do we do this responsibly? Because I don't want to say something that's like just me. I'm the, I'm the only one that wants to do this and it's fast and I get it done and it's not kind of in line with what we as a community see archaeological science being. So I don't know. I really envision having more conversations like this, uh, not even necessarily at conferences, but we talked at the end of um, Frontiers about possibly having some kind of listserv or other form of communication that we can talk about these things and continuously bounce ideas back off of each other, because I think that that's really how we're going to all move forward is kind of being on the same page about what we see as the right course of action. Um, and that means figuring out how we can train, how we can um, share, how we can communicate, how we can be ethical and, and, and responsible. I mean, I think that they all kind of go hand in hand. So here's my answer. Um, yeah, Rachel, you're totally right. At this stage in our lives, in our careers, we can't really implement much of Structure and um, structural change, but I think what I would do differently would be in my research. Uh, you know, so I, in addition to you know having this type of discussions, as you said, which is not enough, but 
it is a very is a first step and a vital step. I would want to take some actionable um, steps in my research, which we include, but not really limited to like, um, I want to invest in an impact focused research by like ensuring a kind of holistic community engagement in all spheres of my research. You know, I also want to take into cognizance that I, I amplify the voices of, you know, the stakeholder communities and the, yeah, I'm, I work with. Uh, also want to be intentional about the ethical implications of my research. In fact, my advisor, that's what she's really big at, you know, um, ethic, ethics and collaboration, community engagement. So I really want to do that uh, to the best of my ability. And I want to employ the information I I, you know, maintain transparency about the kind of methods I intend to employ, you know, and the information I'm permitted to let out for the public consumption or so as not to offend like local sensibilities, you know. So at this stage, I feel like I am actually limited here and also looking for a way to disseminate uh, my results, like um, the way I share to my community, even if it means by like, something like organizing like workshops in the community or having my work published, uh, my published work translated into the local language of my host community. So uh, now that is really what I want to, to do, <laughs> the best I can do. I wish I could do more and I know I will do more, definitely. Yeah, it's, it's hard to find what those actionable next steps are, especially as we're at the early stages in our career, like Rachel was saying. Um, but I think, you know, I learned so much at the conference and I met so many folks there like you all who are doing such amazing work as archaeologists and are also amazing human beings. And I feel like making those connections and keeping that conversation going, as other folks have said, is, is actually a really important part of this slow process of change that Rebecca was, was speaking about. Um, and this, this weekend that we had at the conference just inspired me to keep my mind open and my heart open to these new possibilities for archaeology. Archaeology can be different. It can be um, more or it can, and it can be better. It can be good. Um, and I think that as we add more methods to our analytical toolbox as archaeologists, um, that we have to keep having these conversations about ethics and justice. And I'm really committed to that continued reimagining of the field in my professional life as, as a scholar, as an archaeologist, and as a teacher in the classrooms. I, as I'm teaching, a, you know, intro to archaeology classes right now at SUNY Portland, um, being in that position has really made me rethink how I'm going to pass down archaeology to this next generation. Hollis, that's like a perfect place for what I was kind of thinking about. Um, I, I'll take a slightly different perspective. I mean, I'm, I'm absolutely under no circumstances disagreeing with anything said because I fully agree with it. Um, I think it's awesome. The one thing I'll say is I feel actually really hopeful about what happened at the conference and about a change coming. Um, and I feel like there is a lot more power than we realized maybe be, at least for me before the conference, I feel like there's a lot more people who really care about this, who I think for a long time, many of us have been isolated or have not had the community to sort of talk about this and to like a paradigm happens when multiple people get on board with something. And I think we finally have like a ship full of people 
um, just to keep with the boat analogies that we were doing. But uh, yeah, I think for me, um, I've given two talks since uh, presenting at the Paradigms Conference. Um, at the end of both, I just snuck in a slide on the knowledge economy and fast data and found one of one of the talks was to an audience of environmental scientists and all of them were also fascinated by this idea of like you know us moving too quickly when we do science and not taking the time to think about this sort of like people that are involved in it um and the other one was a room full of archaeologists and i think there's a lot of consensus that these are things that need to change um and i think Hollis is right like we're teaching the next generation i have access to students who work with me i really try and challenge them to think critically about their ethics and their work um and i also think it's great for us to challenge you know the previous generation i know alice was kind of talking about some people may not want to change but i think the thing that's been really I've really learned from in the last year is recognizing where I've come from through this process as somebody who is a white woman um, and what it took for me to start thinking really deeply and critically about a lot of these justice issues um, and that people are still in the learning process and that the learning process is hard and it can sometimes inspire sort of negative reactions, but it doesn't mean that the person is unable to change or unwilling to change. Sometimes you just need to persuade them in the right way. Um, and so I guess what I would say for the future is I really wanna make sure that I'm remembering where I am now as I'm going forward, both so that I continue to be patient with people and with myself as I continue to learn and as the people around me are learning, um, but also remembering to listen because I think that sometimes what happens is we do a lot of good work and as we grow older and more comfortable, um, we forget that there's always more learning to do. So yeah, I I would say that more conversations like this are the future and I'm, I'm really hopeful that there's actually a wave coming. Well, thank you so much. I think you're right and that hopeful, you're all right and hopeful is the word that I'm feeling. Um, I think my biggest takeaway is that, yeah, we just have to keep having these conversations um, and challenging i guess i think like emily says challenging people to do better um and everything but it's good to know that there's this community of people who are already on the same boat as us and are already heading in the same direction and um i think my biggest takeaway is that yeah i'm i'm not alone and it's worth keeping up this fight because other people are there fighting with us yeah, I think what Emily just said um, made me think about how you really have to honor the journey that you go on uh, in in learning and reflect on that later and also be aware that people are at different parts in their journey of learning, which is a big thing that you encounter when you're in front of a classroom and working with students uh, that are, you know, 18 years old and are just starting to think about these things for the first time. Um, and it's it's just so important to be kind to yourself as you're learning these things as well uh, and, and kind to others who are in their own learning process. I, I really love that as a way to kind of bring this to a close because uh, I think there's also so much power in remembering who has gone before you in this journey and remembering where I am in my journey. Also like Emily, a white woman, fairly new to these discussions um, and remembering who has been carrying this conversation ahead of me and who are the kind of intellectual parents, if you will, um, and leaders and um, 
that brings a lot of humility. And so I think for me, it, my, my biggest hope is that we can continue to come to these conversations with both confidence when we need to call out what's wrong and humility when we acknowledge that we're still learning how can, things can be better. Um, and that we can continue to speak to speak out for justice and for equity and for a different way of doing things in hope in a way that really values slowing down and patience and making time to listen and reflect. Um, sometimes I wonder if the pandemic actually gave us that time to sit and reflect and now we're all going, we actually really need this and we'd like to have it in our very fast paced lives that we've been thrown back into. So I just wanna thank uh, all of you here for your just really powerful and really hopeful um, insights and comments and reflections and to thank everybody else who attended the conference, um, who presents, presented the conference, who put work into it. Um, and we wanna thank all of you who are listening for taking the time to listen and um, to let us know if you want to be part of more of these conversations. We'd love to hear, to hear your feedback and um, really we wanna move forward um, and we wanna move forward thoughtfully and, and carefully. So thank you so much um, to Rachel, Hollis, Chiamaka, Emily, to our amazing um, sound engineer, Amy, and to Alice, my co-host. And thank you all for listening. <laughs>